Hello and what's going on? Rich Ryan here, Reinforced Running Podcast. What's up? Today we have Mike St. George on the podcast. Mike is a doctor in physical therapy as well as an elite OCR and hybrid athlete. So he's coming with a well-rounded education from what the demands are for athletes like us and some of the issues that he sees in terms of movement, reoccurring injuries. We talk a lot about like the lower back and mid back and issues as to why that happens and things that you can do to help alleviate those issues by yourself or with some different tools and different practices. So Mike was uh, extremely knowledgeable, really enjoyed this conversation. I think you'll learn a lot from it. So let's get into it. Mike St. George. All right, we got Mike St. George here. We're here. We're going to talk a lot about just smart training, reasons why there are some specific injuries that kind of pop up in this area. And so Mike is a PT and also uh, an athlete in this space. So he understands it as well or better than anybody that uh, I could potentially think of in this field. So yeah, let's just kind of dive into it. One thing that you were interested in when we were first talking was the occurrence of like back pain that you've been seeing. And this seems to be something that has popped up a little bit more. And for me, coming from more of like an endurance background, that's not always like the first thing with like runners. And usually it's, I'm sure you hear, see it all the time. It's like lower leg stuff, IT band stuff, uh, you know, maybe lumbo pelvic region area things that, that kind of happen, but like low, lower back and, and mid back, you don't always see it. So what's been going on with the back pain? What, what, what is it from your perspective is happening with uh, these athletes getting hurt? Well, usually if we kind of back it up to more of the, the basic foundation as to why, you know, the back pain happens, you know, so back pain is really common. I mean, probably almost, they put a stat, like 98% of Americans have back pain. You know, I think a lot of that comes from because we are, you know, generally more sedentary as a society, even though we get up and we, we do hard workouts for, you know, 60 to 90 minutes or even, you know, more than that, you know, people who are really fit, the amount of time that we are sedentary, you know, outweighs the moving time. And, you know, primitively, you know, the human body is, and I actually wrote an article about this in one of my first articles for Enduralite was, you know, the humans are the only mammal that is bipedal. We're the only mm. mammal that is on both legs. And we have that dissociation from, you know, uh, hip extension, hip flexion. All other mammals are on four legs and they might be able to run faster than we can for shorter distances. But that's the reason why we could do the marathon. They can't, they can't outrun us. Endurance. That's like the whole prim- uh, premises behind the born to run. Mm-hmm. Long endurance. Because we're built like that, those muscle, uh, that, those muscle functions that allow us to do that are so critical. But sitting, driving, on our phones, on our laptops, all that stuff works against us. So if you're, you know, you take a desk job, for example, you're at a desk. And even if you get up and you do some mobility and you loosen up and then you go from that position for eight hours a day and then you want to go and do a high intense workout, it's like two extremes. So we have to put in a little bit more work to do like to prep to do mobility, to do all that. And it's trying to understand like, well, how do you balance all that? If you only have a window of like, you know, 60 minutes to work or a half hour or something, you know, and that's where it gets to be a challenge because you see athletes dive like right into it. And then that's where we get injuries because you went from one extreme to the next. But if you make it kind of more of a a, a pattern and it's something that becomes part of your routine that you naturally flow into it. It's not like it has to be this huge thing every day because your body's so used to doing daily practice 
that you'll fall right into that where I don't have to do like, like some people do these like hour mobility <laughs> prep mm-hmm. you know, and it's like a whole thing. It's like, sometimes you would just get and move and loosen up and you're ready to go, you know? And then you have some active warmups and things like that. Yeah. It seems to be the case when, or, or we look for like a massage or something or someone comes to see you once the problem is already uh, like has been ingrained in their habits and they're looking for like one thing to kind of turn it around. It's yeah. like, wow. Yeah. yeah, you kind of have to change everything and and to make this actually go away. And at this point, like I'm not, I can't fix you. I can give you yeah. the steps to to get you there. Yeah, and yeah, that's interesting. With the so basically, you're saying just the the way that we've essentially evolved from you know being bipedal, and then all of a sudden finding in, in like more modern times, in from our perspective as a a race, like they're we're not really used to sitting. It's an unnatural position for, for people. And is that simply just because like, what's the origin of sitting? (laughs) Did it just like, if you look at other cultures, I mean, you see it a lot in Asian countries, they go down to a full squat, you know, their toilets are low, right? One of the countries that sits at 90 degrees. So you lose that mobility. I mean, you you even see it even with some athletes like powerlifters, some of them never get into those deeper ranges because it's not required for their sport. Right. You know, but they will practice some mobility so they can get that function and they don't create some of these, you know, uh, you know, tension areas that, you know, they get stuck at. And it's even the same thing for any athlete. They should be able to demonstrate a full functional range. But even if like, you know, you're training a basketball player or maybe some of the football positions where they might not have to get as low, at least they have that full range because if the sport or the demand pushes them there, it's not like, well, I haven't been here in like X amount of months. So now what do I do? their tissue has the ability to adapt to those ranges, even though you might train different ranges of the squat, different ranges of the jump based on your sport, at least you demonstrate that full function. So you have those degrees of freedom, you know, but I I think that's one of the things that contributes to the back pain is the fact that we, you know, we're very unbalanced with that. But the other thing too, is that we, because of those muscles that are so important, like all of our pelvic muscles, the glutes and, and the core muscles and all these things that control our spine, you know, the lumbar paraspinals are right along your, your spinal, uh, you know, your spinal column. So that's really easy to just use them, you know? So when you get tired, you could even think about some of the things you do in our sport, like, you know, the med ball slams, the burpees, it's real easy to just flex at your spine and pull it back up. Yeah. It doesn't require that much effort, right. especially when you're not used to really training that hip hinge pattern and that stable core. So then you do that and you do that and you keep training those broken patterns, your body adapts to it. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, well, I've been training great for a year. And then all of a sudden my back just went out. That's because these, these survival techniques that we've been doing just to try to get through the movement and these compensatory patterns we've been doing for so long that finally it just, it just breaks. So, you know, the, the core muscles are about like eight to 12 inches away from, from the, you know, the spine, depending on how big the person is. So they're at a mechanical disadvantage. Hmm. So that's why it requires more effort for them to control. And because we're doing stuff like sitting and we're slouched or, you know, we're kind of in these rounded shoulder positions puts us in this like flexion fault that we're not used to being in that up tall position, you know, because when we were created, you know, however long ago from the beginning of man, we were designed to basically do all the primitive stuff that Spartan races, you know, and these, and all like CrossFit and all these new fit functional fitness uh, competitions are trying to push us to do the running, the climbing, the crawling. That's what we were designed to do. We were designed to like hunt for food, build our houses, do stuff, 
Now you don't even have to go to a drive through man. You just sit on right. your couch and get DoorDash. It gets even lazier and lazier. Soon Jones are going to be dropping like all this crap through your house. Like we're just the more convenient we make stuff for us, the more it works against us. So I think a lot of the OCR community gets that because now we're trying to push ourselves to go to that. Like, I mean, I think, you know, the average person thinks we're really extreme, but, you know, going up a mountain, carrying stuff, all that. But we were built to do that. And our society has become so far removed from that, that they think that like, you just see some of the, some of the young athletes I get in the clinic, they can't even lift their butt up off, off a table without getting cramping because they can't do these simple things, you know? And even you get some of the individuals that are a little bit older and they want to go golf 18 holes or they want to go on vacation, but they can't do some of these simple movements because we're so far removed from that. And I think the last, the last, you know, the last couple of years really kind of smacked us in the face society wise with that, especially everything with COVID People realize, wow, I'm not really as healthy as I am. I'm more, a lot more sedentary. And then how much when they actually were forced to stay inside, how much can I really be doing this? Like I need to get out and move. Mm-hmm. The body naturally wants to do stuff, you know. So we, we, we kind of are naturally, you know, driven towards that movement and doing stuff. That's why I say, you know, a healthy body is one that always moves. And that analogy with like, you know, still water, breeze disease, moving water is always fresh. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's how our bodies are designed. That, that's that is a really good analogy. I like that. And yeah, it's, it seems like our brain and our technology is moving just way too fast for our bodies to kind of keep up. Like how you're saying like, Oh yeah, now we don't even have to, to <laughs> don't even have to go to the drive through. It's a funny way to kind of put it, which is true. Right. Like, yeah. And then like the technology, which is making things more convenient, just trying to keep up with the demands of what we think is a productive society or a productive person is actually working as a disadvantage to our, to what we are wired to do. So I do want to get into a bunch of different topics here in, in terms of like how to get stronger, what kind of movements to do, what kind of to avoid, what kind of technologies we can kind of put in place to help with that thing. But first, like I'm sure on your job, it is like, the symptoms here, treating it, figuring out how to get there. But really what you want to do the most is to make sure that you don't have to see them again and send them away so they can be healthy. So what are some of these habits that people can kind of put into place that you seem to be that have been effective for some of your patients or what are some things that you see consistently with these issues that people are doing that we might want to kind of rearrange the way we kind of do our day to day? Yeah. So I think the biggest problem is that we don't understand what baselines for movement are. And a lot of like the the specialty courses and stuff and certifications I'll take will stem off. A lot of people are familiar with Kelly Starrett, you know, functional movement systems, Gray Cook. These are some of the top guys that really started to analyze movement and what to look for. So as an athlete or a trainer, strength coach, whatever, before you start going to a training program, you need to know what that baseline is. And that's really what I'm dealing in with a lot of the, the high school athletes and even college athletes in the clinic with the, with the ACL tear epidemic. You know, an ACL tear is really just the epitome of really poor movement. Hmm. All these things are just residue of crappy movement. You know, if, if things are not aligned right, you're getting all this, you know, the, the tendinopathies, you know, um, you know, the arthritic changes, all these like tight muscles, all that stuff. So really what you got to look at is find, find that kind of baseline. So when we look at how a child develops, we start on our back, you start rolling, they crawl, and then they stand there like half kneeling, tall kneeling, then they start walking. So they exploit a split stance pattern. If you look at a little kid, they squat down, no problem. They deadlift, no problem. They don't know anything about mobility, body mechanics. 
is just ingrained in them to do that because it's biomechanically functional. Hmm. And they have to learn how to control their core because if they don't, they can't control the weight of their head. So they're going to fall over. <laughs> so that's why posture is so key. I mean, you even see it in a lot of, you know, um, overhead athletes, quarterbacks, tennis players, pitchers, posture is huge. Round shoulders, poor posture. You don't have the right scapular mechanics or mechanics. That's where you get rotator cuff issues. Mm. That's CrossFit got into problems. You're taking people from a desk job who have adapted to these rounded postures. Now you want them to do overhead snatches and thrusters. Did anybody, <laughs> did anybody clean up their shoulder mobility? You know, like, right. We deal with that in our facility too, because we, we have the DecaFit affiliation. So we have some of the members out there that want to do some of the you know, the ram thrusters, you know, and all that. And, and we're like, you know, they can't even do the overhead carries with a full lockout of their arm straight up overhead. They're all bent at the elbow and night, you know, the, the arm isn't even in line with their arm. I'm sorry, with their ears. So they don't have a good alignment, like a plumb line. They're off. So then they get stressed through their neck, compensatory patterns. So all these things are just the body's finding a way to complete the movement and the body will mm-hmm. do that. So you got to find like what the baseline screen is. So, Unfortunately, in PT, you know, there's been a lot of stuff where physical therapists have become very stuck in their ways. And that's why, you know, the profession really is not getting a lot of credibility. And, 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 and I'm really, you know, I've been calling out a lot of therapists on that because you see it. I see, I don't even know if I would call it competition, but some of the facilities around my place and some of these other companies and what they're doing is like this cookie cutter BS stuff that they prescribe. And it's because it's, Stuff that they think might work, but it's not really getting to the root of the problem. It's like symptom management. Mm-hmm. You come in and, you know, your back's tight. So, you know, we're going to do some stretches and then, you know, maybe we'll put some stim on there and we'll do some, I mean, ultrasound. I mean, that's even outdated. We don't even do that anymore. But a lot of these things, taping, you know, and, and you see that there's tools out there to quiet the body down. It's really flared up. You have Theraguns, you have like, you know, the power dot vibration, you have all these different types of things, massage you know, grasping tools. Those are all things to try to create a stimulus in the body to get it to calm down. Right. Now, once it's calm, what do you do with that? So that's mm-hmm. why, you know, like a bad chiropractic model would be where you manipulate someone and send them on their way. You know, I could do those same mobilizations where you get a crack and a pop. That's really just where pressure is releasing out of the joint. And so you loosen the joint and then you have to teach the person how to control themselves again, because you could, do all that hands-on stuff on the table. Then they get off the table and they start walking or moving with crappy patterns. They're just going to put themselves back in that same position. So when people say, you know, Oh, you know, I work my core or, you know, yeah, I do that stuff. You really got to look at like how they're doing that. A lot of people do core work and not really doing their core. They're using their back a lot. You know, an example will be when they lie on their back and they do a bridge and they lift up a lot of people hyperextend their back. They're not even aware of it. You know, some of these foundational things like a sideline hip raise to target the glute, their back is all twisted. You know, they're stabilizing with their arm on the floor. So not really using the core or even when they do, you know, some of the things, you know, with the squat, you know, they flex forward a lot at the torso. So they're using their back. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, throughout time, we're kind of looking at there's got to be better ways to look at how people move. So, you know, now we're starting to come out with, um, a more technology that could analyze that because the eye test can only go so far. So some of the stuff that I'm thankful to have available in my, in my clinic is there's new sensor wearable technology that you put sensors on the athlete. And I actually have tested some athletes in the OCR community come to the clinic and have done this and we're using it for all the athletes. And basically when they move, it'll calibrate the movement and it'll tell you how much deviation they're getting. So 
the, the one test that we, we do is we'll look at the plank. A lot of people hold the plank, but they're really locked out in lumbar extension. Sometimes mm-hmm. they lower lumbar segments. So they say they're planking and they do core work, but they're really using their back. Or, Meaning their their lower back's like arched. Yes. Right. Yes. Or their butt's in the air because they're trying to keep a flexion position because they can't they can't find that neutral spine position. Right. And then a same thing with a side plank. A side plank, they're not able to get their side torso off. They can't even get the bottom of the bottom leg off the ground, like the outside of the leg is touching the floor. So that's telling you that those perineal muscles, which are the muscles that allow you to bring your foot out, are weak. That's correlated with a lot of ankle sprains. And then the next movement we kind of look at with that is a squat. So we know a lot of people, they, they don't squat right. And you'll see that even in like some really good weightlifters, you know, powerlifters, bodybuilders. When they squat, they'll do a lot of lumbar extension compensation, especially as they get lower into the range. So they might get really deep into the hip flexion, but they can't keep that control of their torso. So they arch their back and then their mm-hmm. back is really what's controlling that weight. So they scoop it up and then all of a sudden they got to wear a belt to give them extra, extra support and their back hurts. They have to squat and heavy. And that will tip, that'll tip you forward if the weight's too heavy, right? Like that's how you'll, that's how you'll lose a, a squat yeah, like that. Or like, you see those fail videos where the bar goes over the dude's head. Or right. Something. So like, so yeah, that, that's if you're tipping forward and losing and like your butt shooting up first, yeah. that's probably a good indication that you're, you're just like your patterns or your, or your, you're not strong through your core. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Or just yeah. like not you're, being able to kind of like lumbar paraspinals. And then yeah. sometimes people get really low, but they get that butt wink where you see their tailbone kind of tucks under. Yep. So people are doing like goblet squats or, you know, thrusters with a weight. When they go down at the bottom, they tuck under because they have the mobility, but they're not stable there. So right. then when they go down and they come up, their lower back is flexing. So now the lumbar paraspinals are taking the pressure right down, like the lower lumbar on the tailbone. Then they wonder why their back hurts because you see that micro movement. So the spine just stay nice and stable as they drop down and as they come up. And that's a control thing. The butt wink yeah. is it's yeah. more just like yeah. and that would be making sure the the pelvis doesn't tip yeah. backwards. Exactly, it doesn't tip back. It looks like their butt kind of tucks under them. Yeah, you see that. And I'm not. I'm never sure. It's like is that a a strength thing or is that just like a motor control yeah. issue? It's but it's a little thing. bit. Of, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. And then, you know, now before we even look at that, like before, you know, we would always clear out like ankle mobility. If someone's ankle is tight, that could throw them off at the squat, hip mobility, things like that. But you could see what a lot of, you know, um, even some of the athletes, like they could get their hip all the way up. You know, they get their knee full. If I could lie on their back and pull their knee all the way to their chest and, and, and pull their foot up and get that there, they, they have full range. So if all of a sudden they can't squat below parallel, you know, it's not a mobility issue. It's a motor control. They can't get that low. You know, you saw a lot of people struggle with that in high rocks competition. They couldn't get low because they just don't have the control there. So then you start getting collapses at the feet, collapsing at the knee and they get knee pain, ankle pain, and people don't understand what's going on. You know, I saw on the skier guys, watch someone in DECA as they were collapsing down, they were collapsing at their ankles and knees on the skier. That's yeah. like not even loaded. <laughs> that yeah. is just like loading themselves into yeah. like an eighth of a squat and they were still folding in. Yeah. Um, so like so, something that's like more specific to, to runners and OCR athletes, like in what, what line are you typically, or what do you typically see? Like a, a person is going to have ankle issues before they have uh, like pelvic issues before they have 
core issues are, or what's that kind of looking like? And what are some of the indicators like the, like what you were just giving, but something that's like a little bit more specific to uh, like an OCR athlete or. uh, Yeah. I mean, it all starts with the single leg RDL pattern. I can't tell you how many even high end athletes cannot execute a single leg RDL. There's no dissociation from the lumbar spine and, and the hip. And this is even coming from some of the surgeons I network with who clear kids for D1 scholarships. They just don't know how to do it because the high school level is so deficient at that. And like, where are we learning how to do that? But that single leg RDL pattern, and this is, this is one of the things we look at with the sensor test. They will put the sensors on, they do a single leg RDL, and you really want to make sure that obviously the knee doesn't collapse in or out. So valgus varus, um, there's a five degree you know, um, parameter range they get. And that happens when the femur rotates inwards because the glutes are not controlling or you get a side flexion at the torso because there's no core control or you get what looks like corkscrewing where the back leg goes behind and it like fishtails behind them. So they do a corkscrew pattern. Mm -hmm. I see somebody doing a single leg RDL pattern like that. You know what it's going to look like with running. So it could be from a tight ankle. It could be from, you know, core control. It could be a whole bunch of things, but we notice a lot of things stem from core control. Everything starts from here. Pelvis instability, core insufficiency, stem everything down the kinetic chain, because if you're very stable, proximal, everything down the rest of the chain will, will fall into line because the knee is just a connector joint. It gets caught between the hip and the ankle. So if you're not stable here, it's going to trickle down. The knee might take some blow and then your ankle might compensate. So one thing that people do is it'll measure how much they do tibial inclination. So how much your shin flexes over your ankle when you do that squat. Someone who's not confident or someone who doesn't have good control won't get deep into that squat. And you'll see an asymmetry. Like we see that on some of the ACL kids. And it's not always sometimes the side they tore an ACL on. It could be even the quote unquote good side, which really wasn't the good side. Both sides are really bad. But they feel more confident on the non-operative side. So they maybe they flex more over that ankle. And then on the operative side, they might not. Or they've been training, you know, maybe in, in, in a really bad physical therapy setting, they're training the operative side too much and not the non-operative side. Mm. But I get the same thing with someone who's training for OCR. They're doing an RDL pattern and they're not really getting into their hip. Or you see they, they flex at the spine or they have a weight. So you're squatting on the left leg and you're holding a weight in the right arm and you see they rotate at the spine, you know, and I see that all the time. I mean, you know, we had another, you know, really big podcast in our group who brought on some physical therapists that were using examples of that. And they gave like the top exercises for runners. And I completely disagreed. It was not the top exercises for runners because those movements do not translate into the actual sport. So Mm. when you look at, what movements we have to do is, is the movement translating into the sport and position that you're in. Mm-hmm. So OCR athlete, those single leg patterns are really important. Split stance patterns, lunge patterns, because those are the shapes and positions we're going to be in mostly for running. And yeah, we have to train some squat and deadlift because you do some of that especially hybrid fitness, but really for running, you have to have good control in that split stance position. So, you know, you'll be very surprised when you look at how many people can't even get into a split stance. So, one foot is forward, hips are level, the other foot is back, and they have to push through their rear toes. That's like your, your, your end phase terminal stance where you go to push off. And some people, if I have them do like a band press out or even mm-hmm. weight, they're losing balance. They're all over the place. You mm-hmm. know? So they don't have that control just in that foundational position. So what's happening with the lack of core control? Is it simply the the lifestyle that we've taken on or is it because of – 
practice movement patterns that might be deficient because it seems to be like you mentioned, everything kind of starts from the core and that these issues seem to be because of a lack of control a lot of time. Yeah. So yeah. One, what, what's causing it and two, like how, what are some ways that people can kind of regain that control? Yeah. So it's, it's definitely both. It's, you know, the greater the athlete, the, the better ability to compensate. You know, because mm. you have something on your side that allows you to skip over that loophole, whether it's size, whether it's natural speed, good tissue quality, genetics, you know, or maybe just training exposure. How mm. many athletes in our sport are just really good at hurting, right? They just <laughs> suffer fast. That's OCR, right? Yeah, that's the it. Athletes need to understand what's a good pain and what's not a good pain. And sometimes right. you get so used to suffering, we don't know what a good pain is like. Yeah, this is hurting because it's hard. This is hurting because like my body's telling me this is not a good position and athletes push through that. But pain is a message to tell you this is not a good learning environment. You know, you wouldn't keep your hand on uh, over a flame, right? Because you're going to burn your tissue and burn your entire, you know, extremity away. So why would you keep doing a movement that hurts? You're not learning anything there. That's the principle of it. So if the movement is painful or dysfunctional to continue to practice it just to say you did it. Mm-hmm. You're not, you're not learning anything and you're creating poor patterns. And then that's where it comes into, it, it, it takes a toll on performance because if you keep, you know, if you keep having this type of movement pattern deficiency and you keep reinforcing that, you know, practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent. If you keep practicing the wrong things, you get really good at doing the wrong things. Mm-hmm. And your body only knows one thing. So if you never really target your core and your hip flexors and even strengthen your dorsiflexors in those positions, when you run, then your body only knows well, I'm going to use my back. So you could only go. And then when you try to push into that next gear or you want to push that next mile, all of a sudden the wheels come off and it breaks. My back gave up my back spasms or how many people, you know, go to enter a race and then their back, they have to drop out because the back hurts. We've seen, you know, a lot of other happen to a handful of people, you know? Um, so it's just all this, just extra tension there, but you know, back to the sensor testing, you know, the next thing that we would look at after that single leg RDL would be a single leg hop in place. And you hmm. look at what their plyometric ability is. Can they actually jump off the ground? And then how much control do they have when they land? That correlates directly into running. A same hmm. way with, with descending running. How many OCR athletes have a problem descending hills or they go down a hill and they sprain an ankle or they get hip pain? All that ground reaction force that drives up through, the, through an unstable pelvis and, and, a, and, a, and a, you know, basically your spine. You get SI joint issues or it jams up and then it goes right all, all throughout the whole, whole chain. Now, like running down Palmerton, that's extremely, extremely like dynamic, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you're taking something dynamic and you're not very stable and you combine them, now you're just going to do more damage to yourself. Whereas if you're really, really stable, it's just like it's going to chisel less armor off of you if you really had a good foundation when you go through that. Because there's nothing easy about that. There's nothing easy about these races, you know? Mm-hmm. So the goal is to take, be more bulletproof, basically. And a lot of athletes are not doing enough of that foundation to bulletproof themselves. They're doing too much of like the specific stuff. Like, you know, we're going to do the burpees, you know, we do the thrusters, we're going to do the sandbag carries, the sandbag carries, but we're not doing the foundational stuff that makes us better at those movements. So what would be an example for, let's stay on the descending one, because that's okay. huge, right? Especially yeah. in this sport, because like a descending can win or lose a race and it could really change your experience in obstacle racing. So say that 
that someone doesn't feel stable or does feel pain when going down or, or whatever that is like, what are some things that those people could do to, to help strengthen those areas yeah. or be more confident with it? Yeah. So here's how I would progress any athlete. First, you know, you look at your checkpoints of what, what the foundation should look like. So, you know, if you're looking at a lunge, is there a good alignment of the torso, the hips, the knee, the foot angle? What does this look like, which is body weight? And what does it look like with body weight under high volume? That's where the whole calisthenics came in. You know, we used to do a lot of that over at, at Mark with, at iCore Fitness, a lot of calisthenics. Can your body just get resilient to doing those movements? With no extra stimulus, just body weight. How do you feel when you're tired? You know, and, and you'll see how many people just really the form goes to crap. Like like Murph is a great example, you know. So even without the vest, you know, just doing body weight stuff. Totally. So once you're there, if that movement looks good, then start adding maybe a little bit of weight and start doing more of the weight. Can I maintain those checkpoints of movement without rotation, without loss of balance, without having to like hinge my back or compensation. These are the plyos you're saying, like single leg plyo jumps, or is this like- uh, Before you get the plyometric, just just regular. So if we did like a single leg RDL, execute single leg RDL, just good control. Got it. Or a split squat body weight. Then try adding a kettlebell. Then when that looks good, maybe try adding a dynamic surface. Put your front foot on like a foam Airx pad, you know, or do it and like throw a ball or something or have your eyes focus on something else. Cause you mm-hmm. know, your eyes are focused when you're looking at something else. Once like the foundation is there, then you could add in a plyometric. So then maybe you could put like, you know, one foot rear foot elevated on a box or in a TRX cable and do like a single leg hop and control single leg hop and control. You saw a lot of that, you know, I mean, some athletes started had adding that into some of their programs, you know, um, like Hunter McIntyre was doing some like superset stuff. I saw a post where he was doing that and they're coming in and doing plyometric stuff in that single leg position. A lot of people like to do box jumps and box jump overs, but how well can we demonstrate that single leg plyometric ability just on the, you know, single leg, because mm-hmm. when you're running down a hill, you're going over and you're landing. It's that single leg control. The single leg is so important. And that single leg also, you know, that asymmetry, one leg can be more stable than others. that that really has a high risk for injury too. So again, that sensor test will show a lot of that too. So now we're understanding human movement and shows where those checkpoints will be. Like for example, with a squat, they really look at the torso should not flex forward more than 30 degrees, you know, and that, and that's hard to measure, but you can kind of eyeball someone flexes. You'll see a lot of people go in and they flex all the way forward. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of that you can see with your eyeballs. Like, yeah, that doesn't look great. Or they arch their back. But the sensors will just objectify it a little bit more. Sure. The sensors also, too, is pretty cool because we could do a running test on there where you put it and it'll actually show their ground reaction force. And that is calculated at that mid stance position, which is your single leg RDL pattern, which is why a stable single leg RDL is very important because that's your mid stance position running. So that's your transition through the gate pattern. So if you're not stable there, you're losing all this extra power for running. And that's kind of where... Um, which Diaz would come in with his assessing of the running and he would see people would land on the outside of their foot or they would like rotate and your body has to do all these extra movements just to complete one extra step. You're just getting tired. So that's why who are the, who's the most efficient at like these OCR races, who's the most efficient at DECA, the, the runners that are the most efficient and have to use less energy, the athlete that tires out the less. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause you guys are talking on your last podcast about how can we get efficient at the assault bike? How do we hit those calories and not gas ourselves? You know, I mean, that's, that's part of the, the sport, but overall cumulatively who tires the less of this, who could be the most efficient. And if you're using the right muscles that are meant 
to do those shapes and positions, you're going to use less energy. And that's the same thing I tell to the field sport athletes for you to get from A to B to go to the ball. A lot of these young girls, the coaches never teach them how to run or never do any foundational stuff. It's three hours of soccer. It's three hours of lacrosse, field hockey. It's the same thing. It's like doing, you know, like, uh, you know, OCR hit grinds all the time. You know, and I remember like when I did a training program under Kirk DeWitt, he would, he was yelling at me for doing that after a while. He's like, dude, all you're doing is like these high intensity workouts. I know they're fun, but you got to do some foundation based stuff too, because Mm -hmm. your body has to have time to like have that time under tension with that. So that's where I started learning for myself too. And started seeing with athletes that you have to do some of that basic stuff. So if I want to run from point A to point B really fast, and I'm using all these compensatory patterns to get there, not only am I wasting more energy, it's more blood and oxygen. It's more muscle work. It's just, I'm just going to get tired to do a simple movement where if I can get from point A to point B more efficient because the right muscles are doing it, like my glutes, my core, you know, my hamstrings, instead of my back muscles that are only meant to try to have certain function. Now they're overworking. It's going to make me more efficient athlete, you know, and it ties into the same thing. Like, like with neck pain, a lot of people have neck pain because their shoulders are weak. So what happens? The neck muscles kick in. Your upper trap mm. muscles, your extensors start tensing up to give you stability because your scapular muscles are weak. So every time you do overhead stuff, oh, my neck hurts. Same or, thing. or pull-ups, right? You'll see people kind of exactly. get, get, get shruggy like on pull-ups. Yeah. yeah. So you're right. Like they, these separate exercises, you're talking about single leg RDLs, you know, goblet split squats or something like that. Less fun. Less fun exercises. It's so like, always the case. The less sexy stuff is the most important stuff. And any of the specialists you see, even on Instagram, some of the best like guys out there running, like you know the you know science behind even some of the best trainers, they post the basic stuff, no views. They post something crazy, all these views. Everybody's yeah. doing it. Oh, it's <laughs> awesome. But it's not what athletes need to do. I don't need to be jumping off a Bosu and doing all these crazy things like. You know how OCR gets. We get these fun challenges and all these really cool things. That's cool once in a while to like fire up the community, but that's not what you have to be doing week in and week out. You know. So where would you put something like that? Like say for a high rocks, right? You need to get stronger, and like there's only and I understand that the movement patterns are essentially what's going to help you become more efficient, become stronger. So like doing things like a like the single leg work that we talked about, but you also have a big heavy ass sled you got to push in like six weeks. You got to get stronger. So can these work concurrently? Like, can you do the foundational work like in the front or back half of a workout and then still kind of layer in things like squats and deadlifts, even if you're might not be 100% optimal, would you recommend something like that? Or would you still be like, you really in your best interest is to work foundations first before you get to anything more extreme. Yeah. So you know, again, that kind of comes down to, so I think if we kind of back it up, like looking at that foundational stuff, if you can't demonstrate the control in a very basic position, that same movement dysfunction is going to translate to the more aggressive. So if I can't right. do a basic bridge and get my hamstrings to turn on, I'm using my back, or you see so many people can't even control themselves in a bird dog position, like real basic stuff. And they actually slow them down and have them do it. A bird dog exercise is not fun by any, I mean, who the hell on hands and knees, opposite arm leg, like that's not, it's stupid, but how many people lose balance and they extend their back? But that simple movement dysfunction translates into your deadlift, translates into your sled push. And if you can't even do a simple movement on your hands and knees, how are you going to push 600 pounds on a sled? 
You're just going to compensate to get it done. So that's it. You could still get stronger, yes. but you might not be strong where you need to be. Like the compensation might move that sled. Yeah. And for some people, they're like, "Hey, I got to race in six weeks. Yes. I'm in my 30s. What am I got? Why I I can't be sitting here doing." Well, this is what Dead comes bugs. down to. Yeah, exactly. We've talked about this as you know. Look, you know, our sport loves pushing races all the time. The trifecta. It's a business. They want people to sign up and race. The true athletes sign up for the races and they dedicate training programs towards that. And I mean, you know that being a coach. So you have parameters. So especially if you have an off season, off season is a great time to find those weak links and build that up. And I think something that would be advantageous towards a lot of the the coaches in our sport would be, I don't know if you guys do this, but just do like a little zoom meeting with your potential clients and look at how they move because before you can even prescribe, okay, well on Wednesday, you're going to do a strength session of squats and this and that. And then like, Thursday is going to be your long run. Well, if Wednesday they were using their back to do all those strength movements, that's going to translate to crappy movement in their long run. And mm. it might not happen within the one, two miles when they're fresh, but as they start going longer and fatiguing down, their body's going to be like, well, I haven't trained these muscles under fatigue and stress and been challenged. I'm just going to go back to you moving my back in survival mode. And then all of a sudden they're reinforcing poor patterns. So, I mean, you see, you can see the same thing in the NFL. There's so many uh, powerlifting coaches that, Oh, we got all these guys that power clean X amount of weight, but they compensate to get those last reps of weight. So guess what happens in the fourth quarter when they really got to try to make that sack or protect their quarterback back goes out, ACL goes, or they get fatigued or they get blown on their ass because they get rushed by someone who's more stable than them. So when it really comes down to the cusp, you know, of who's going to be the better athlete, there's the one that has a better foundation and is just doing those, those little things. Cause the example too is, you know, for anyone who follows football, you can look at someone like Saquon Barkley. How do you make somebody like that better? You're going to tell me he needs to squat more weight. He needs to get faster. That right. guy's a genetic phenomenon. Or it's the same thing like even some of like the top athletes in our sport. There are some that are very well-rounded. And how do you make them better? Like how do you make Usain Bolt faster? I mean, I listen to the podcast of how they do make Jamaican runners faster. You know, like it's all about those little micro things, these little foundational things that they're missing, you know. What do they look like in these more basic things? Are they starting to get into compensatory patterns? And you're going to start seeing that with more of the technology coming out. It's going to be more available that every athlete is going to be able to go into these movement type sensor uh, situations where you get a movement analysis and, and see what you look like. I mean, a lot of colleges, even sometimes in D1 schools, have it on the squat rack or anything. You're squatting, you move out of alignment, it beeps. So you're getting yeah. more, more awareness. So you know, so if you don't have that technology, again, you know, if, if a coach looks at how you move, like you could see if somebody's losing balance or they're not great. Like, look, you got to do more body weight control of that first. And then we'll start maybe doing it with like just a resistance band, you know, or let me see how you do that exercise. Oh, you're moving your back. Try to keep that more stable and then kick out. Or, you know, try to find some of those positions. What does your lunge look like? Is your front knee collapsing in? Is your back arching? Are you like getting stuck at the bottom with the weight and having to like arch up? Well, that weight's too heavy dial it down, do more body weight instead of doing, you know, sets with heavy weight. Maybe we're going to do more like lots of sets of, of 15. Everyone thinks like, you know, bigger and better is better. And it's just, it's just not the case, you know? Dude, sometimes when I see those videos, I watch them with the the football players who are do cleans and I'm by no means an Olympic lifting expert at, outside of just like, you know, coaching CrossFit and then like watching real yeah. Olympic lifters lift the way the football players clean is yeah. nuts. They basically, it is all compensation that they're just that strong. Yeah. They could just yank that thing off the ground yeah. and put it on their shoulders. <laughs> it yeah. is great. Exactly. 
you know, and, and a lot of that too is, you know, compensation too, you know, the, it's just amazing how as we progress with fitness, we have so much more information, you know, coming at us. It's just finding that right information. But I mean, you'd even be surprised how many of the, of those pro teams, they move outside of the facility and they go to private trainers, you know, Tom Brady, LeBron James, you know, uh, Michael Phelps, you know, anybody like real top tier, they have private guys that train them. I mean, there's even a guy up in Colorado, um, Chris Knott, who uh, works out of Colorado Springs and he trains a lot of the Denver Broncos and mm-hmm. he's like uh, Adele Beckham Jr.'s personal trainer. A lot of people seek out personal trainers on the side. And you even see that in a sport. People reach out for coaches because they need someone to show them what they're doing because sometimes in a mass setting or a mass network, they can't get that individualized attention to what is key for them. And that kind of backs up to, again, with physical therapy. I mean, I've had conversations with, with a lot of athletes who have had injuries. I mean, I've written probably over... 30 articles for Endurly trying to get information out there about some of these issues that happen, Achilles tendinopathy, patella tendon, uh, tendinopathy, you know, IT band, what all this means. Again, it's all residue from crappy movement, you know, and then how do you, how do you get out of that and fix that? And we have a lot of athletes that have been struggling with that because they get garbage PT, to be honest. I mean, even, you know, like again, on a podcast a while back, Hunter McIntyre said the same thing. Like, yeah, I went to PT and they gave me all this stuff. I was like, dude, I don't want to be doing this. And it's true. Doing like seated heel raises is not what you need to be paying. It's just if you're paying out of pocket or you're paying like a $50 copay. That's like, that's what you're doing in skilled care. Like you should see the crap programs out there for like low back pain. It's like, oh, I do the stretches. And it's like, oh, like that's what you're spending time in a skilled setting with someone who's supposed to be a doctor of physical therapy. So it's no wonder when like maybe the community hears I'm a, I'm a physical therapist. Like, oh, we know what he does. He just does like some massages, some stim and stretches, like, there's so much more out there, but there are so many places that are not doing it right. You have to train the body to have control in the positions that translate to your sport. You know, so again, runners, split stance, single leg, you know, if you're training for high rocks, you have to get into those deep hip flexion angles. You know, can you push through the single leg? Is your core stable? You got to look at the things that you're doing, you know, you know, like, you know, although like the, it's just, you have to train that foundation and then correlate it into the movement specific. So that's where a lot of PT falls short and they just, you know, it gives the profession a bad name. And I think it fails a lot of people and they get frustrated or they give them some of this basic stuff and they never teach them how to translate it to more advanced stuff. You know, <laughs> the, the, uh, I, I, res- I, not recently, I went to PT maybe like a year and a half, two years ago. And yeah, that was, I had this same, probably the same experience a Hunter had I, I paid someone to watch me do banded sidesteps and Copenhagen planks. I was like, dude, I could fucking just do this on my own. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then the, my, I think where I really screwed up, I think what happened, I never went and got an extra or anything, but I think I had, uh, a stress fracture in my sacrum. Cause yeah. it just like hurt real bad. And like, they thought I, I mentioned that I was a runner to them and they were like, Oh, you probably have weak glutes. I'm like, just because I'm, yeah. Or, or like, how does, did you yeah. watch me move or squat yeah. or they're like, Oh yeah, we lose. Go get, go do some banded sidesteps and some donkey kicks. I'm like, yeah. And, okay. and the other thing too, with the profession is, you know, we're very scared of change. We like to, you know, hold on to stuff that has been established in the eighties and we can't let it go. I mean, there's even like, you know, some coaches and stuff that are out like that well, worked in the eighties and we're still doing it. And they're scared of these progressions, but we are advancing as a profession and we have a lot of that advanced stuff. I mean, one of the simple systems is, in a lot of my posts that that Kaler core training system that I've been using, that guy who created that is a three-time hall of famer, Olympic level rower. And he's actually in the facility. And I met him actually doing trail running at Tyler state park. 
And I met him. And at first when I saw it, I was like, what is this guy in the woods with this, with this giant pogo stick thing? I was like, why do these people find me on social media? Comes out to be, dude, this guy is really smart. I mean, he has so much experience. You know, he has data on over 2,000 athletes. He's worked at a lot of D1 schools and teams. And he realized that throughout all this training, he saw all the stuff we're talking about here, all the compensatory techniques, high-end athletes from NFL guys, Olympic-level guys. I mean, you should see some of these rowers that – you know, he brings in for some of the training. These guys are huge. And he's like, yeah, he's like, we went against the Russians and, you know, in the nineties and stuff. And he's like, we still crushed them even on their steroids. He's like, there's only so much you could compensate, but he created that system because that helps the body learn where that foundation should be. So it forces you to move right. And, and there's all those jokes around there about, about the neutral spine. The only reason we teach a neutral spine at first is because people are moving their back so much. They have to understand that, that, that base level. Then once you understand that base level, then you go to rotation and explosive. So a lot of people do like med ball throws and stuff, and they're using their back to do the rotation. They don't know how to generate the power through their leg. You see that with a lot of pitchers, even quarterbacks. You even see that even with the spear throw. How many people throw the spear and they twist their entire body because their back rotates? If they would actually generate the power from their leg and in their core and get a nice movement from the the core and dial it in straight – they'll hit the spear right on target. And it looks so effortlessly, but so many people try to like wing that thing like a fastball and all those rotational movements just throw them off. So it's the same thing. So, you know, that, that system that he used just trains you to get and tap into those muscles that really, you know, were kind of deficient on. So he actually had uh, me, you know, working with it. And it's ironic because the deck of fit last year that I ran at, at the Iron Peak Spit, I went back there last week. I ran the same exact time, but my training has just not really been, it has really, I've only been doing two races. I'm going to do Citizens Bank on Saturday. And then I did the DecaFit because my time has been so devoted to the business and the clinic and my hours have been crazy. I just try to get training in, you know, whenever I can. So looking at just working on some of those foundational things, my running did feel a lot better, even though I ran the same time. Hmm. It's just just having to work on getting that endurance of being able to take those mechanics and take it to a a hold at a faster pace. But it just really clicked to me to work on that foundation because I was not using my hip flexors. My hamstrings are weak as crap. You know, even with my core with some of the things I was doing, it's compensating with squats. But until you took someone with so much knowledge, who is like, higher up there with a lot of experience, you know, 30 years of experience with all this networking to actually kind of show you that it's very humbling to be like, wow, someone actually analyzed me and did and showed me that because I just use myself as an example because we all make the same mistake. You kind of get into something and you don't really do the checks and balances. Like I got into, you know, OCR in 2014 and just started kind of getting into it after I'd been through some, you know, traumatic injuries and major surgeries. And I didn't know about this. I skipped all the foundational stuff because you think it's stupid. I don't got to mm-hmm. do stuff. I don't got to do I'm going to do squats, the lunges, push-ups, you know. And then, you know, I got into doing all like the crazy OCR workouts and stuff. And your body just starts compensating through that. And then you have all these weak links. Then you wonder why you can't push into that next gear or why towards the end of the race, your back's tightening up and you can't go because it's, you never train these foundational things. So to be able to experiencing it as an athlete and also a healthcare professional myself, it allows me to translate to the athletes because now it's clear as day when I see it. And I, you know, I want to see athletes be able to do the best they can because, you know, your time is kind of limited. And we saw what it was like when we lost time during COVID. That was very disruptive for a lot of people. And you see how it is even now. A lot of people are picking and choosing where they race because of travel and 
other things this year. This year's kind of a little weird with the race schedule, but people want to race. They want to make it count, especially those that are really competitive. So to show up to a race and, and not do well because your back tightened or you had to drop out because something flared up, to me, that's just a shame, especially when you know someone has really good athletic talent. You want to see them be able to go out and crush it. Like you guys saw what you did in the last decade. You guys set records. Like you, everyone dropped their times. Like that's awesome. Now imagine if people were hurt and they couldn't do that. Like, right. One, like, oh, you know, so-and-so had to drop out because of this or so-and-so didn't do well because he had knee pain. Like that's not athletic performance, you know, like you want to see people do well. So that's, that's just where I'm at with everything, you know? That's one thing with the obstacle racing that I've found has differed from, you know, following something like regular track and field where injuries pop up so often in like deep endurance sports. And I, I would imagine it's because they're spending so much time in the same exact movement pattern over and over that even to like the slightest bit of compensation or the slightest bit of inefficiencies can create uh, over, over time can create these different injuries where in OCR the, the demands are so varied that we're either gaining strength in areas that we wouldn't have if we were just doing one single modality or we're not spending enough time killing ourselves like with the uh, compensation patterns, um, yeah. which is something that I've, I've, I've just noticed. So it's rare that someone misses a competition in OCR because of um, injury, unless, you know, they, you know, it's like really really, yeah. hurt themselves, <laughs> hurt themselves yeah. while obstacle yeah. racing. Uh, yeah. I have a, I have a personal question for uh, myself on this. Yeah. We spent a lot of time in the lumbar area. I have a horrible thoracic. And this is something that it, I think it is just lifestyle shoulders, uh, shoulders forward. I never did anything that necessarily required overhead strength in, in terms of, or mobility and like sport. Like I played like basketball and I was a runner in high school and that's like what I ended up doing then ran so long after by the time I realized anything overhead was a problem or my thoracic was so tight. It seems like it's just like so much has been tangled up and is just a mess. And I think my, my upper back, it, it looks really developed, but I don't do much upper back. <laughs> and I yeah. think it is just uh, being a comp like, and I don't necessarily know if it's that not strong on anybody else's. Yeah. I think it's compensation from pressing position, overhead pressing positions yeah. that yeah. like makes my back look super jacked, even though it's just like, I'm like, I don't think that this is right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like with, with, the thoracic area, is there, is there issues that you see that are stopping people or like, how do you kind of help someone with that? Because from, in my experience, it's pretty frustrating, man. It's like pretty, pretty tangled up back there. I don't even really know how to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. The thoracic spine moves just as much compensatory ways that the lumbar spine, you know, and even seeing that with training on like that Kaler core system, you'll see that a lot of people will move like right where their thoracic blends in with their lumbar, thoracolumbar junction, or even the upper back, especially with overhead stuff, you'll kind of arch to try to push up. And then you're not really targeting your shoulder muscles. You're using your thoracic spine. So you create tension there. And then that tension, all of a sudden, if you're just kind of sitting, even if I just sit with poor posture for an hour and I'm not aware of it, that starts to develop over through that. Mm -hmm. So then you start getting that. So you know, thoracic, it comes down to some of those basic things, you know, the extensions over the foam roll, some more of the scapula stuff, like trying to bring out the scapula. And then even just being aware of when you're pressing, are you extending there? How many people do like overhead straight bar military presses or even the thrusters and they're like compensating and they're arching the back. Sometimes you got to dial that back and work on even someone just a straight overhead carries 
and really being good alignment because when you really get that arm back there, you'll see that it's like hard. And some people are really kind of off their forward because they can't get there. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it's this conversation of working that mobility and then getting the muscles to be more stable in those positions. Yeah, that's what something I've been trying to do is press out, like keeping everything neutral and then pressing and finishing through, like at yeah. instead of just like being out in front of myself, like, all right, good rep, like actually like yeah. trying to get to that position where there's some good back. stuff too, where you like stand, you know, like the little pull-up assist bands, the really thin ones, like the yep. orange ones or whatever. You'll stand on it and you'll stand like a plumb line with your arms straight up. And so the band's like through your hand and it's angled under your foot. And you'll kind of like press the arm all the way up into the ceiling. And then you'll kind of rotate the whole arm. So you're trying to loosen up the shoulder girdle. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to open that up. And then even doing stuff like that starts to kind of really open up and dissociate the, the glenohumeral joints, your shoulder joint from your scapula. And kind of getting that to open there. And then working on even just endurance of those carries because that really opens up without extending. Even if you have to stand up against a wall and work on just keeping that there and doing some of the presses, that'll start to open some of that up. And then again, a lot of the rows, really making sure that you're getting the scapula to squeeze. A lot of people do the rows and they like use that, their upper traps, they're not even aware of it, you know. And even some basic stuff like TRX cable work, really good, or even on the stomach like the T's. The problem is a lot of people grab like five pounds and they're on their stomach and they're doing like they call the Blackburn exercise, the T's and the eyes and stuff. They're not even getting to end range. They're like doing like these little pulses. Try it without no weight and just lie there and really squeeze your shoulder blades and like bring your arms up like with your palms flat like a T or turn your thumbs up to the ceiling and go up like a T and just try to work on holding like an isometric, really squeezing and holding for like five to eight seconds. Do 10 of those. Most people are exhausted because they can't, hold that end range. They've been doing weights and they're not even getting to the end range there. You know, that's, yeah. that, that's a move. I forget. I don't know what it was called, but basically sitting like, uh, an elevated bench, like a inclined bench and then like chest forward on it. And then like raising mm-hmm. into a Y to yeah. try to get like lower trap. That is so hard. Yeah. Like yeah. it needs to be body weight, just thumbs or like a two. Yeah. To, and it, and it, so many people are deficient with the low trap. They hammer that with a lot of overhead athletes because it's just a, a weak area because of posture and stuff. So that's a hard one to get the why. That was an area when old school bucket carry, uh, like w- we had to carry in front. Yeah. That yeah. like lower trap region would be fire. I feel yeah. like that was the only time I ever used it was isometrically holding that bucket. Yeah. Probably because you're depressing your scapula and trying to drive it down to hold the bucket. So you're not shrugging. So you can work on yeah. your you know, it's pulling you. Yeah. The, the bucket's pulling your hand. So yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. A lot of new people don't remember the days of having to fill them up with the, with the rocks. Dude. And then we had to get it to the level where the holes were. Remember judging was like, well, if we could see daylight through the hole, you're disqualified. Send you like, back. We're looking at each angle to see if there's air coming through each bucket. That was wild, man. I remember, I guess being at Vernon, when did you start doing Spartan? 2014. I didn't do 14. my first Palmerton though until like 2016 because I, I had a relapse and getting sick and stuff in 2015. So I only did one battle frog, did Citizens Bank that year, you know, but really I didn't do the first mountain race in 2016. So that's, that's almost my story too. I did my first, I did Citizens Bank in 2013 and then just didn't do anything until I, until 16. I did Vernon, Palmerton and yeah. a tuxedo that year. So Vernon, okay, tuxedo. yeah, yeah. And, uh, that was wild. Guys, I was just like filling that bucket. I don't know. Like <laughs> that was, those days were so, it was so much harder to carry that yeah. bucket without a lid on yeah. it too. Yeah. It, it just had this true like grit feel, you know, I, I know a lot of people miss that stuff. I mean, I get, they want to standardize, but 
I don't, I, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea to have some courses that are like throwback courses that people could sign up for. That'd be cool. You know, if possible and just have a couple trailers set aside where they have some of the old school style stuff for people to go and sign up and do it. I mean, you know, I mean that we always have a lot of ideas as athletes and we, we know that as a business, they don't really listen to what we're saying. So, right. Cause they're looking at it from, uh, we've been talking a lot about efficiencies. They're looking at it from yeah. like a business efficiency standpoint. They're like, we're not going to get all these gravel rocks and set up this gravel pit. <laughs> Every yeah. time we just put the bucket that has a lid on, we just set it out there. Yeah. And that'll be yeah. good. Um, a thing with, uh, I want to go way back. I mentioned like the foam rolling or like, uh, uh, like when someone, when you get like an adjustment and then you kind of move right back into those patterns, there's something with foam rolling that I want to talk, touch on a little bit that or much just my understanding of it's like, yes, it like will alleviate some, it can kind of like manage some pain, increase range of motion, but temporarily. Right. So like where, and, and because like what you said, because then we just go back to wiring or these patterns that are just like incorrect. So is it advantageous to, to do like foam rolling and then do range of motion work? Is yeah. that the appropriate yeah. way to do it? Cause it seems like mostly now it's like a pain manager, like, Oh, yeah. my calves yeah. feel like shit. Let me yeah. foam them. Like, Oh, they feel better. Let's go running. Yeah. And then, so like, <laughs> what do you, uh, so is, is that like kind of the best way to do that? Yeah. So all these modalities are there to help reduce compensatory patterns. So all right. So a lot of athletes are doing a lot of self-management because the body is compensating way too much. So those recovery tools are there for recovery after hard competition, hard workout. But when I see athletes, especially on social media and their story is recovery, like three, four times out of a week, it's not, it's not beast mode, you know, and this is something that Yancey tried getting out way back when he came out with training, the whole beast mode mentality, you're just destroying your body. That's not the beast mode. That that mentality of, of crushing ourselves all the time is not healthy. We know more than that. Especially, you know, you look at, um, uh, you know, Ronnie Coleman. We know so much more now about how to get muscle hypertrophy. That guy, if he wanted to do bodybuilding, didn't need to squat that much weight. He probably could have been not on loft strand crutches if he knew what we knew now. You it's know, so sad, there's better man. ways he's of doing in, stuff. It's more efficient. Yeah. He's so in that's a bad, an example bad of. Yeah. You know, like crushing your body to the point is not always a win. And, you know, you have to look at your longevity as an athlete too. Like, you know, so these, these maintenance techniques are there for a reason. Like we're going to get tight. You're going to get tense. Sometimes Sometimes you have a stressful day, you feel tense. Use this to reset the body. Harder is not always better. When Graston first came out, they used to think you had to bruise somebody. People think you have to take a Theragun and drill it. And they're like, Oh yeah, dig it out, dig it out. That's not the case. <clears throat> when you're doing those soft tissue uh, modalities, you're kind of sending a message to the brain to release tension in that area. That's why there's a lot of research coming out with the Theraguns. That's why they're so popular because vibration is being shown in a, in a productive manner there that that stimulus helps to reduce the tension. I'm not talking about vibration like using a jackhammer in construction for hours. That could be noxious, meaning toxic to the body. I'm talking like if you look at like, um, you know, Hypervolt's uh, app on the phone, if you have the Bluetooth one, they have you do a couple minutes in the air. That's all you need. couple minutes, reduce the tension. Now, when you reduce that tension, it allows your body to move a little easier. Now you reinforce the, the good movement pattern. So that's why I always do a lot of manual techniques on my patients when they first come in. Because then I'm kind of setting them uh, ready, getting them ready to prep. So then they can do the movement. If they come in and they're all tense and they're all stiff, they're going to try to fight around that to do the movement. 
Right. So I helped them out a little bit by cleaning them up and then they use their brain to the muscle matters to learn how to do it. Because guess what? If you learn how to use the right muscles, you're not going to need to use stim. You're not going to need a hypervolt. I mean, I can't even tell you the last time I really used a lot of those recovery tools, even after some hard weeks and some hard workouts. And that's where the message started to set to me. Like I'm knowing, like I'm getting more balanced. And sometimes when I start feeling some attention, it's because my body was really tired or I was compensating a little bit. But I know in previous years, I used to do like, like track workouts and my calves would be all blown up or hamstrings would be on fire. Or even sometimes I'd be doing some of these like, you know, um, OCR grinds and everything would just be so jacked up. I'm like, oh my gosh, just compensating, compensating. So you see that. So, you know, foam rolling, you know, hypervolt, you know, whatever, or the Theraguns, you know, Graston, all these things, they help to reset the body. Then you move in and, and, and you do that. So if you're coming in off of like a long drive or a plane flight or you're, you're at a desk job, do that stuff first, do some warm up movements, you know, then loosen up, then get into it. And then afterwards you could do some longer recovery stuff. Like if you want to do some more, you know, tissue work is maybe some stuff is really jacked up from a really tough workout or a tough competition. Then you get into like your Normatec compression boots, you know, the ice baths, heat, whatever that stuff, but you don't want to over relax yourself before a workout. Like you mm-hmm. see that too, where people go and they get a really, really deep tissue massage. So now you're stimulating the body. Then you want to go do something really dynamic. Your body's like, well, what are you telling me? Relax or, or get ready to, to go fight or flight. And you've seen right. that in the NFL a couple of times. Some of these coaches not keeping tabs on, on their like receiving core, their defensive back core. These guys are going and getting massages early in the morning. Then they're going playing under the lights later that night. Mm. Their body's all relaxed and they go to make a sharp cut. Achilles pops because mm. you're sending a mixed message to the body. You know, so sometimes it depends on like what type of massage and stuff. Are you getting some like quick massage or quick blood flow before a run? Or are you having someone doing like deep tissue work to relax you out? Now your body's like, okay, now I'm going to chill and recover. Now I'm going to go, go beast mode. No, it, it's too conflicting. You know, that's where you get into a problem. Yeah, that, that's a good, that's a, a good way to kind of put that. Like, what are, you, what are you trying to accomplish and the timing of the recovery and your recovery method is most important and it's also interesting with the foam like sometimes people will ask me it's like oh it's the best way to recover i'm just like i don't i don't like eat carbs like that's like you know like ultimately like that's what how i kind of think of it less of the body stuff because like i don't know why you feel like shit and in my own uh personal journey i used to get hurt a lot running and then i've changed my running mechanics to kind of and not not they're not they're not perfect right but they're like but they're better they're much right? better. And I haven't yeah. been, and I haven't been hurt. I never need to foam roll. I never feel go. like I like don't need that stuff See? anymore. There you go. We actually just told the listeners, stop with all that crap. And here's the thing, you know, companies are going to find all the high powered sponsored athletes because they want their product to be seen. So right. they pass the stuff out that athletes aren't expected to really know. Like if you're not a healthcare professional, you're not supposed to know how to use that, but you're going to show yourself on Instagram tagging people. That's what the companies want. But it doesn't mean it's the right thing for you or what you need to be doing. So I get asked, should I, do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Should I get this? Out of all these years I've been sponsored by Endurly, I've never pushed that product on anybody because it depends on what you need. Like, do you right. need a pre-workout? If you do and you want it, it's a good brand. Do you need a recovery drink? You know, even Matt Mossman said himself, he's like, honestly, a banana and peanut butter and stuff is a great recovery. But if Same you thing. don't want to eat that and you want the recovery drink, I make a good recovery drink that, you know, doesn't have bullshit in it because right. I have science behind it. So, food you know, there's other, yeah, and there's other good brands out there. It's just 
do you need it and where are you implementing it? You know, so that's where, again, you know, people go into physical therapy and a physical therapy gives them stretches. And it's like, you're just mitigating the symptoms. If you get yourself to move better, you don't need to do stretching. I mean, I can't tell you how many people come in and they get their leg behind their ear and they're like, oh, my hamstrings feel tight. You get that with like yogis and stuff like, people <laughs> like that. And it's like, you're, and they're like, I feel tight. It's like, because your body's not stable. It's trying to pull from a point to, to get stable. And that's why like people with back pain can't sit still. They always have to keep moving because they're trying to find a position that they're getting stable. So they keep moving their body because they can't stand or stable because all of a sudden the tension starts setting in mm-hmm. and then, and then they hurt. So that that's a dead red flag right there. That they're not stable enough, you know? So they keep trying to find ways to go around and they keep trying to do all these things to mitigate the symptoms. And I just, see so many like athletes in a sport struggling with that. They're doing this or doing that. They're taking this medication. They saw this specialist. Here's another key thing to let people know. Look, surgeons have their specialty area. You know, that's what they're really good at to be able to do the surgery and, and work under some of these, 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 you know, microscopic levels and have that hand and eye coordination and the mental control to repair something is a lot of skill and understanding what happens if you cut someone open and some things don't look that great tissue quality is bad. How do you triage that? That's where surgeons expertise are. Surgeons do not understand body mechanics and movement because they're not working with that every day, you know, and that's something that we deal with with a lot of even like the surgeons that do these ACLs, they, they write these protocols and stuff. And I'm like, how do you know when you're going to tell an athlete to get back to running? Are you looking at how they're moving? No, you just, just like example is you could be a mechanic and you could be really well on working on a car and fixing it. Doesn't mean you're a good driver. Doesn't mean you can do the Indy 500. I mean, it's two different skill sets. So when you see how they work with really high powered athletes, everybody stays in their lane. Surgeon, physical therapist, nutritionist, massage therapist, you know, mental coach, mind coach, everybody has their lane. They all talk to each other about here's what's going on in my lane. These are my checkpoints. It's falling back into your lane. You might need to intervene or it's going this way. I'm ready to pass them off. That's how multidisciplines work together. So that's why when people go and they see surgeons and they get these opinions, the surgeons don't know, you know, and they tell you, it's like, oh, don't squat. It's bad for your knees. Are you freaking kidding me? Like that's the biggest bunch of bullshit ever is because surgeons don't know how to teach people how to squat properly. <laughs> right. Like just because it's bad for your knees. I had, uh, I was training this person, uh, this dude in, in person one time and he was asking me about running and he was like, oh yeah, my doctor said, you know, anything over five miles is bad for your knees. Cause he used to do marathons. And now he just does five miles and his knees aren't bad. And I was like, that's the most ridiculous fucking shit ever. Like who, what, like that's absurd taking this anecdotal experience and telling your patients that yeah. like it's yeah. bad to run long. It's like, yeah. And, he, and the yeah. guy who I was talking to, he's like, well, he's a doctor. I was like, not a running doctor. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's yeah. definitely yeah. not what that guy is. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think that's why I get, you know, getting this information out is so crucial. And like, you know, I, I'd wanted to do it for a while. I just didn't know who wanted to entertain it because I know it's needed because I see so many athletes getting injured. I mean, now we're even seeing some ACL tears kind of come into, into our sport. Some of the females yeah. have suffered that, you know, um, and, and, you know, it is. And, and you look at like the research and, you know, I'm, I'm thankful over the past couple of years to have networked with some of these really great specialists throughout the country that are doing that. And, you know, everyone loves to talk about research and stuff, but sometimes Look, if you do something and somebody moves better and looks better, clinical, you know, outcomes is just as powerful. You know, it's got yeah. research takes time. It takes money. 
And sometimes research, like what are the parameters? Sometimes you could do a research report and it was like five people and it was shitty parameters and they didn't follow through. And that's what the, that's what the results, if you actually read the results report, it wasn't a great research report, but somebody puts a headline up and says, well, research shows this. And it's like, do you actually even understand how to read that article? So nobody reads it. Yeah. So it gets aggregated and like people like you or I will talk about it or it gets like put in an article about something and no one, that's my, one of my favorite things to do is like click into that article, like, and like look and then actually read what it says like oh this is like this is just cherry picked like this is this this was this way because of this other scenario that wasn't being like either addressed or or managed it's like oh okay like this is explainable and and not necessarily science um cool man i do appreciate you coming through and sharing this information where and you, you make some content. So where can people find, you mentioned some articles. I know you do some uh, uh, audio type or, or uh, long form co- uh, content as well. Where, where can people find you? Yeah. So I'm on the, uh, I'm on Instagram. You know, I think most people know that the honey badger underscore juicy. Uh, I do the podcast with uh, my strength coach, coach Haas, the coach Haas podcast. And we've been putting on some like small uh, tidbits, some like, quick 15 minute ones about some, Facts, you know, the last one was on like, you know, ACL stuff, but even just about movement patterns, training programs, things like that, that people ask. And then we will do some long form stuff with some specialists in the, in the country, some of the surgeons, things like that. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn, you know, see some of that on Facebook, you know, uh, and just trying to get that information out, you know, um, especially with some of the really cool stuff that I have, you know, at my disposal, you know, especially moving into a new position with a new company and them allowing me to run this clinic. You know, um, you know, I do have, you know, like Alex Sawicki, uh, you know, working in my facility and even nice. Tyler, McCre- yeah, Tyler McCready comes in sometimes and, you know, Tyler's a great example and he'll, he'll, he's, you know, he'll admit himself too that as many races that he's won and podiumed, you know, there's times where he's had issues and things like that. And he doesn't want to be falling apart by the time he's like 40, he wants to do this sport and have fun with it. And I had Bob come in with the Kaler core system and, and we helped evaluate and I did some sensor tests on him. We also did it on Alex to kind of show where these, these deficits are. And it, you know, I think that the take home message is, it's just like, you know, I think it's a shame that if I have this knowledge to watch other athletes and other people hurt, I think that that's, and even if I'm competing against them, how can I show up to a race and know that they're hurt and not share that knowledge with them? That's just not me. Cause at the end of the day, competition is competition. I would not feel better if I beat someone because they're hurt. That's not true competition. And that's not the type of athlete or, you know, type of sportsman I am, you know, plus also I'm a healthcare professional. Like if I could tell you a way to get better, let me share that info. It's just a lot of people like to hear about all like, you know, the, the fun stuff. We want to talk about the OCR programming. We want to talk about, you know, how can we get better at carrying a sandbag up a mountain? Like we have a lot of podcasts talking about that, mm-hmm. but there's enough talking about the functional foundational stuff. And if it could give somebody a season and not allow them to drop out or help somebody have more, a lot more fun with racing and, you know, not have these issues, then why not share that, you know? And, totally. and perform better, you know. I mean, so at the end of the day, we all are up against the same thing. You have to do the obstacles, and if you don't do well, it's because you didn't train for that. Nobody can really prevent you from doing well. It's not like football where a defensive back had you covered, or you know, right. something like that. We're all up against the same thing. We're all on the course the same way. You still have to to, to complete it. So the real enemy is really yourself, and are you prepared to do the tasks that are there? You're just doing it up against everybody else to push each other. So that's what's unique about a sport. Like 
we do get competitive and we challenge each other, but at the end of the day, it is still a community because we're all doing the same shit, you know? Yeah. So, you know, if, if someone does better at a, a bucket carry or does better at wall balls or something, that that's not their fault that you suck. You, you weren't doing the right things to get better. So here's the things that you should do to get better and give yourself that potential because someday you're going to look back at it and be like, you know what? I didn't complete my career because I had pain or, you know, guess what? You know, Spartan's not going to pay for your medical bills. So if you want to destroy your body to get up, to hold up, you know, a metal piece of a uh, uh, triangle that was made in China, like that's really what it comes down to. Like it's more than that. It's mm. about your achievement. It's about your ability to, to, to accomplish something. If you had to crush your body just to get up there, like, and you got to wake up and be like, man, like I'm hurting. How much more can I do this? Is that really worth it? So I think if we get that information out there so people could take better care of themselves, I think some advice even for the coaches to add some things in with some of the training programs. It's only going to allow the sport and, and athleticism and, and all that stuff to grow. And that's really what it's about. I mean, you know, you see that, you know, we have coaches that care and want to do that. You see, we have people like Yancey who keep trying to build big, you know, like community type things. We want to see it grow. We don't want to see this stuff go on. We all love it. So, you know, we want to keep doing it. So, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, again, I appreciate you sharing this info. Got my wheels turning quite a bit. So uh appreciate that. Make sure to link to all your socials and everything. So people got questions, they can reach out. So appreciate you popping on, man. Yeah, man. I appreciate the time, Rich.